Are you overachieving and still suffering? When you're socializing, do you feel like you're pretending and performing? Do you keep asking why? Why earn more achievements just to collect another win? Why pursue another plaque or medal or line item on my resume if it's for vanity's sake rather than out of passion? Why work so hard to capture the dreams I've been taught by society to want when I continue to only find emptiness? You try to talk to your friends, but they lecture you instead of listening. They fix instead of feeling. If you want to feel safe, secure, and supported, reclaim your voice and purpose, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Danny Greaves. He is a childhood and relationship trauma expert best known for using groundbreaking psychological techniques to help his clients move on from painful past trauma, boost confidence, conquer self-expression, and achieve their dreams. He has worked with thousands of people and corporate clients, including Google, where he provided their employees with mindset training. Danny has authored multiple books, included Accelerated Trauma Resolution, The Step-by-Step Guide to Overcoming Trauma. For many years, Danny struggled with anxiety, low self-esteem, and stress, and couldn't form healthy relationships due to various traumas. He often resorted to food or alcohol to get away from his problems until his late 20s, when he reached a point where he desperately wanted to change. With millions of people failed by traditional talk therapy, Danny wanted to find the most powerful treatment techniques to help someone struggling with traumatic memories, and he turned to a neurosurgeon specializing in psychology, a master hypnotist, and a world-renowned cognitive therapist for help. In under a year, he went from unhappy, overweight, and single to calm, confident, and enjoying a loving relationship with the woman who's now his wife, doing a job he loves, and thriving in all areas of his life. Welcome to the episode, Danny Greaves. Uh, let me ask you this, Danny. First of all, where are you at in the world? I'm in Norwich in the UK. Norwich, UK. That Norwich sounds like uh, like a population of 5,000 people. Is this a big city or is it small or what, what? Tell me a little bit about Norwich. Population of Norwich is probably around 100,000 people, I'd say. I lived in London for six years. And then me and my wife decided to move out of the the big city. So we've moved closer to the countryside. Okay. Now, you're the author of a book called, uh, of multiple books, but one including Accelerated Trauma Resolution, the step-by-step guide to overcoming trauma. Typically, when people write books about trauma, they themselves have undergone some major trauma, typically in their childhood. Is that the case for you, Danny? It was certainly the case that I had some really challenging experiences that I wouldn't have even at the time labeled as trauma. But actually, as they developed into a range of symptoms from anxiety, really low self-esteem, overwhelming stress, when I was actually able to look back on those events, then they would definitely sit in the, the trauma category. So how are we defining trauma? Because I feel like trauma is one of those words that people are mentioning, but, you know, we're not defining. And, and like so many words, I feel like it, over time, it we kind of lose an idea of what a traumatic event is versus something that, you know, maybe bothered you or was uncomfortable, but it wasn't traumatic. Uh, how When you think about a traumatic event, How does that show up in the body? Well, we would define a trauma as something that, to begin with, overwhelms our ability to cope. So when we're in that moment or we're in that experience, the level of threat that we perceive, the level of emotional pain we perceive is greater than we're able to cope with. And when we have that experience, 
then it tends to fall into the trauma category. And we can kind of think of really two different types of trauma. We can think of trauma almost with a capital T when you think about those singular events that are sometimes feeling like they're catastrophic. Or we can have a trauma with a small t, which is maybe when you get incredibly criticized by a parent when you're five or you get bullied intensely when you're an 11 year old so we can kind of think about it as two different categories but essentially it's that overwhelming our ability to to manage and process it i'm glad you mentioned that because so many people have experienced traumas and they've kind of dismissed it because they were like well i wasn't beaten by my father i was just criticized by my father. What would you say to someone who kind of diminishes their small t trauma? We can say that if it was a single occasion where you were criticized, then you may put that down to more of a a one-off event that was a difficult or challenging experience for you. What I've certainly found is that those small t traumas tend to accumulate over time. So when we're in that environment and we're exposed to multiple small traumas, if we still sort of stay with that analogy, then these tend to accumulate. And over the days, weeks, months, years, and for some people, even decades, the accumulative effect is actually bigger than those other one-off events. So often we diminish it. But actually, when we look at it in terms of the impact that it had on us, both now and later on, then I think most people can then see it through a different lens. Can you give us maybe two other examples of what a small T trauma is? Yeah. So first of all, I can use the one that I lived through, and that was the divorce of my parents. So it wasn't a catastrophic event by any means. It wasn't something that was um, managed poorly. You know, we were all brought together. It was spoken to us really calmly. We went through it on the moment. And from the outside, it may look like a, a difficult, but a standard event. But the impact of that on me in terms of how I felt about myself, my family, how I developed relationships, how I was able to trust people, how I could communicate, that effect rippled on for almost two decades before I realized that actually there's something here to work on. Yeah. Talk to me about how, first of all, how old were you at the time of the divorce? Eleven. So at the age of 11, I could imagine you don't have the skills at that age to cope with this disillusion of your family, separation, tearing apart, you know, however you felt about it at that age. Looking back, what would have been helpful, effective, healthy for your parents to say to you, or what do you feel like you needed at that time to better cope with what was happening? I think when the event takes place and then over the coming weeks, we're kind of bouncing between mum's house and dad's house. We're being introduced to different environments. We're moving home. There's so much that's going on. It's almost too much to even digest. So we kind of like, push through it and then we go, okay, we're, we're working through this, but actually the emotions aren't actually getting dealt with. And when you can see that actually there are, you know, I had two sisters, so they were struggling. I could see my mum was emotional. I could see my dad was upset. So when there's so much emotion in and around the family home, like being able to process that, I think actually does require some professional skills. Um, It does require someone possibly externally to be able to help bring out the challenges and to be able to process those emotions because there's so much going on there. Um, So I think in an ideal world, there would have been some additional external support, which would have allowed me to actually express how I was feeling and actually get clear on how I was feeling because it's, it's, it's quite murky waters at that stage. 
how did you perceive your dad handling it emotionally versus how your mom handled it emotionally? Because I, I noticed well, you said your dad was upset and your mom was emotional. Yeah, so the challenge is we're with mum Monday to Friday. So you can really get a sense of mum's doing everything she can to make everything as smooth as possible. And then at the weekend, we have a short window of time where I'm seeing my dad. And you can see that just in snippets, just where the guard is let down for just a moment and that emotion creeps in. And I think even as youngsters, when we see that split second of emotion, it touches us deeply and we store that. And what I found is that when I would see those split seconds of emotion, I would carry those with me and I would replay them and I would think about them. And because I kept everything internally, those images of my head just kept building up and accumulating. And that's what was really difficult. So I appreciate everyone deals with those emotions differently, but it only takes a split second to see someone who is your parent, your caregiver, someone who looks after you to see them in pain that actually has a huge impact on our nervous system, both from an emotional level, but also from a survival level. Like if the person who looks after me is in pain and struggling as a child, that's going to create some, some danger and some threat inside the system. Right. Increasing cortisol levels. And then you kind of go into this fight or flight mode. You said we store it in our bodies. Where do we store it? Where do you feel like you stored it in your body? I, when I think about storing trauma and emotions, it's typically in my stomach or abdomen area. Where have you found that you typically store it? So my symptoms actually express themselves over time, actually through chronic pain. So when I was in my early 20s, I started to develop chronic pain in my left shoulder. And then that then developed to chronic pain in my right shoulder. And I had years of treatment, years of actually working on them, exercises, all the different strategies. But actually, as soon as I started the emotional work and I actually worked on those experiences, that's what actually allowed my pain to, to release and leave. So definitely for me, it was in my shoulders. And I remember the, the common phrase, the weight of the world on your shoulders. And kind of that's the analogy that, that, I, that I carry, that I had that emotion just weighing me down. So because, you know, your book is Accelerated Trauma Resolution, a step-by-step -step guide to overcoming trauma, what would you say is the first step to dealing with the weight of those emotions? So the first step is being able to learn how your mind works, because we cannot change anything if we don't understand the nuts, the bolts, the mechanics of how things work. So if we think about the different senses that we have, we have the visual sense, we have the auditory, the sound sense, and we have the kinesthetic or the feeling. We also have smell and taste, but we'll put those to the side for one moment. So when we have these three different elements, we'll often find that depending on your personality, your learning style, we'll each store traumas in different ways. So we need to learn how the mind works, the visual pictures that cause the distress in the system, the replaying of the sound of those events, the feelings in the body. So when we learn how the mind works, then we can start to unpick how each experience affects us and then we can start to change it. So I would say, first of all, being curious because we need that curiosity to be able to learn. And then a little bit of knowledge goes a long way in terms of how the mind works, because when we can start to make sense of things, then we feel like we're making progress and then we're on our way. You know, I had someone on a podcast who would describe things as being, she said she felt catapulted or um, annihilated, not catapulted, but there was another word where it's kind of thrust into and and I just noticed that she was using these descriptive words that I hadn't heard other people really use. How do you determine how a person 
what modality is the best to approach a person like kinesthetic, visual, auditory? Like what are the, the clues? Is, are there tests that you give? Is it the words that they use to describe the event? Well, the lovely thing about being a human being is that you cannot not communicate. So the language that we use reveals the preferences that we have, but probably above and beyond that, the nonverbal behavior that we display gives us an indication of how we are feeling, what we're doing, what we're keeping from ourselves, what we're closing off to, what we're opening up to. So it's actually relatively simple when we listen to the words that we use and the nonverbals. And I think for a lot of people when you're on the inside being aware of your posture and your nonverbal behavior is so difficult let alone being able to listen to the words that you use so that's where we need that external feedback that mirror in a sense to be able to play things back to us so it's a bit of a combination of factors so the first part we're looking at curiosity and then someone say someone you realize is more kinesthetic so then what's the step after that? And I'm asking because I probably lean in a more kinesthetic dimension in terms of uh, how I would cope with my trauma because my girlfriend places her hands on my chest to kind of soothe me in, in times of uh, when I feel flooded. So for someone who's kinesthetic, what, what steps would you take them through the, or what would you teach them to help them cope? Well, hopefully you're in good company because I'm a strong kinesthetic as well. So I have a, a similar approach. And when we think about a strong kinesthetic element, we need to help someone to feel safe. So that's our first priority, because when someone starts to feel safe, then they can start to explore with curiosity. Because if someone is in a place where they're guided by their feelings, they're guided by a strong sense of what's happening in their body, and their body is hinting or suggesting to them that there's danger around, then we're never going to be able to get in that place where we can explore what the issue is. So there are numerous different ways that we can help someone to feel safe, but it's identifying what are that person's values, what's important to them. And how can we start to make that connection? Because it's all about connecting with the other person, building rapport, and then that person can feel safe to start to explore their feelings. So it starts with safety, I would say. I love that. And then so for someone who is more visual, what, what does it start with in that regards? So for visual people, it's often quite clear because they'll show you with their eye position so often they'll be creating and storing images up above them so for example people who struggle with anxiety often they have a very very vibrant imagination the challenge is they're creating scary pictures about what might go wrong or what they don't want to happen which then that visual feedback in turn causes their system to release those stress chemicals so for people who are of a more visual uh, preference, actually helping them to become conscious of their visual imagery and to help them understand that they can control that is really, really empowering. Because when you understand that actually you are in control of the movies that you make in your mind and you can start to build the skill set of creating better movies, then that often really empowers people because then they're in control. Is that where vision boards come into play or maybe even self-talk? Like what, what would be an exercise to help someone, you know, create new visual imagery? So the easiest almost or starting exercise is when someone starts to feel a little bit anxious, often they're unaware of what's going on visually. And if they then start to ask, okay, what's happening here? What am I seeing? Then they'll start to notice that actually they're creating almost disaster movies in their mind's eye. So by bringing their awareness to that, then the simple question is actually, okay, what is it that I want to happen? 
And then by creating an image of what they want to happen, that then instructs their system to move towards that. Because we're, we're cybernetic creatures. When we create a vision of what we want, we can move towards it. So it's all about helping us to create the pictures. And for some people, that'll take a little bit of practice because they may have had 5, 10, 15 years of practicing thinking about what they don't want. So it's a skill set that we develop, but actually even beginning to get a bit of a picture about, okay, what is it that I do want to happen? Then we start to become more in control of how our mind works. All right, you can't just throw a word out like cybernetic creatures and then not expect me to to not ask what is a cybernetic creature. I I need to know. Well, the easiest way or a simple way to describe it is that when we have a clear image of a goal that we're moving towards, then our system can help us move towards that goal. So in order to start to achieve and move towards what it is that we want, we need to direct or instruct our system which direction do we want to go in. So if we have a picture of what we don't want, it's almost like, say you get into the back of a taxi and you start to tell the taxi driver or the cab driver all of the places that you don't want to go. So then the cab driver starts to sit in the front and he knows all the places where you don't want to go, but you can't go anywhere because you haven't given him anything to work with. Whereas as soon as we have a destination, then all of our resources can align to move towards that. And then we start making progress. I love that. And then you said visual kinesthetic. And then what was the third way you said we learn how the mind works? So getting a sense of the auditory, so the soundtrack. So this can partially be the internal soundtrack, so the way that we speak to ourselves. But what is very, very common, let's say we use the criticism example that we talked about earlier. So someone was repeatedly and heavily criticized by a parent when they were younger. So they may have a visual image of their parents standing above them and sort of looking down on them, which in itself is threatening. But just as challenging, they'll have the soundtrack from their parent telling them they're stupid, they're not good enough, they're not doing it right. And we can get stuck in what's called an auditory loop where that soundtrack just plays over and over again. And then we get stuck in the moment and we have that stress response again. So all of the components work together and there's something called a synesthesia, which is where they all come in at the same moment. So a synesthesia is when the visual, the auditory and the kinesthetic all come in a flash, whereas there are other moments where we might be able to actually differentiate them a little bit and work on them individually. So I want to backtrack really quick because I just realized when you were talking about the visual imagery and how that affects us. I remember reading or hearing somewhere uh, on a podcast and a woman was saying, when you walk down the street, imagine the people who are walking towards you or that you're walking by have little thought bubbles and you can decide what those thought bubbles are. And it really changed how I felt when I walked past people and, and in crowds because a lot of times I realize I default to the most negative, uh, critical, uh, you know, constricting ideas and beliefs about this person and about what they think of me. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just thinking about all my faults and, um, I'm just beating myself up. And then I, now when I walk past people, I imagine us hugging, holding hands, uh, you know, uh, having a, a wonderful conversation. Uh, I tell my, I, I give them all different backstories of, oh, I, I bet you, you know, they would love to, you know, listen to the podcast, whatever. Just <clears throat> something more, <coughs> something not, I don't want to say positive, but something that just feels more nourishing, more grounding, and more connecting than you know, the scripts that I had running before. And so when you're talking about the changing that visual narrative, I recognize like how beneficial it is 
because my default is a horror movie. It is like Law and Order SVU or, <laughs> or you know, uh, 19, you know, uh, South America in the South in the 1930s or something like that. Uh, so there, there is definitely an impact. Um, and then when you're talking about self-talk, I have noticed that when I get a massage um, or if I fast, my self-talk naturally becomes positive, encouraging, nourishing. Um, you know, I, when I'm getting a massage, I, I'm often thinking about big picture ideas. I don't know what that is. So I, I don't know if it's the behavior that changes the self-talk, because otherwise I have to kind of force the self-talk. So can you talk to us? Is there a... Do we get the same benefit from forcing the self-talk uh, versus putting ourselves in situations that allow for the self-talk to naturally become loving and nurturing? Yeah. So there's sort of three layers to this, essentially. So if we strip back to the first layer, one of the most popular models for how the brain works is called predictive coding which essentially suggests that our brain is continually making predictions about what's about to happen, what outcome might happen, and what's possibly going to happen so that the brain can allocate resources for it and prepare you for it. Now, the interesting thing about that is that your brain makes predictions about the future based on your experiences of the past. So when you have more painful, difficult memories or moments from the past, that will lead the brain to make more predictions of danger about the future. So that may contribute towards more of a default internal dialogue, which is quite negative or catastrophizing or ruminating because your past experience is informing your brain that actually this is more likely to happen. So that's kind of like the, the deepest layer. And then we can think about, well, the way that we process information is that we have an input, we process it, and then we have an output. So depending on what inputs we give our system will influence what our output is. So when you go for a massage and you nourish yourself physically, so you have some pleasant sensations, when you go to a lovely cafe or restaurant just to think or to reflect, you're giving nourishing input to your system which allows you to create a better output so we've got this background of predictions then we've got this environment that we can put ourselves in which will then influence it and then we've got our conscious control on top of it so that's when we can consciously say okay i'm aware of this but i'm going to choose to think different thoughts so almost like a pyramid, if we work with the deepest layer, the predictive layer, that's going to naturally mean that it's easier to predict nicer things. If we go to more helpful and fruitful environments, that's going to make it naturally easier to think better thoughts. And then when we add that conscious layer on the top, then we've kind of got everything moving together. So they all can work individually. But when they come synchronously, then we get a much more comprehensive or fulfilling result, I think. Yeah, the environment definitely has an impact on how we feel about ourselves and how we are processing trauma. And I've received letters from people who are in war-torn areas who not only are they in war-torn areas, so the environment outside their door feels unsafe and unsupportive. Uh, you know, it's communist. And then they have struggles inside the house. So whether there's con there's interpersonal conflict with their family members, and then they have their own struggles that they are coping with. How does one find an environment that allows them to feel safe and supported when it seems like all the environments are the complete opposite of that? Well, 
There's no easy solution to that because it's totally understandable. If you have challenge externally and within the home, then your available space to feel safe just does diminish. What we can say in this environment is that when we have an event or an experience, we'll then have a response to it. So even if we can't control the events on the outside, what we can control is the way that we think about them. So when we start to learn what questions we can ask to balance our mind. So let's say, for example, we have something externally in the outside world. So there's some uh, war-torn area that's really challenging. If we then start to think about and focus on all the things that could go wrong, and we think about all the worst things that could happen, we then start to lose sight of what it is that we want to do. We lose sight of what we can do with our actions, and we then tend to get left to run away with our thoughts. So I'm not in any way pretending that's not an extremely difficult situation, but when we can learn to balance our own perceptions, then we can at least find peace internally. And what we'll often find is when we have peace internally, we then notice more peace externally because a lot of the world is a reflection of what's going on inside us. So finding the peace internally in whatever way works for you is one of the most effective ways that we can deal with such a difficult situation. That resonates. I was reading this book, Unbroken, by Laura Hildebrand, and there was a gentleman who was held captive for a number of years, prisoner of war. And he said, although he was in his cage and beaten and pummeled and starved, there was a chicken that would run around the prison camp. And every day you see this chicken and the chicken, he said with, with, you know, the bombing, the torture, the brutality, the deaths, the starvation, he said, this chicken just looked so nonplussed. Right. It was just so unaffected. <laughs> it was the, it was the most stoic thing. And he said that helped to ground him. That helped to give him some sense of hope. He was like, it can't be that bad. This chicken is just, you know, you know, living its full life. You know, it's not running from anything is not it's not flinching from the bombing. It's just, you know, you know, just every day doing this thing. <laughs> And I, you know, and I, and I think about that image from time to time because there are times, like you said, it's like if you can, there, there's, there's peace somewhere, even amongst the chaos. Um, there's a, there's a window that we can all look through to kind of ground us and find that serenity. Um, Absolutely. So, and, and so then what would be the next step? I feel like that we, we, that was a lot for the first step, right? We're talking about learning and curiosity and learning how the mind works. So what's the second step in terms of accelerating uh, trauma resolution? Well, the next stage really is to then start to process those images, that auditory track. So we've moved into a curious place. We're open to learning with then starting to get an experience. So not like a, a textbook theory, we get a lived experience of, okay, when I picture this, that happens. When I hear this, that happens. And I experience this in my body. So we get an experience of it rather than sort of just learn a, a description of it. Then when we're aware of that, that's when we can start to change the imagery. So one of the sort of leading sort of the revolutionary changes that has come in in terms of the literature over here in the UK is a concept known as emotional memory images. And that's essentially when we have a painful or traumatic experience, it's the information that the mind stores about that experience. So what happens is we have a painful experience, our mind takes a snapshot of where we are, what we're doing, what we're hearing, who we're with, the environment we're in. And then it stores that emotional memory image and it stores it often out of our conscious awareness. So what happens is as we go about our day and our life, any time our mind can link what we're going through now to that original experience, 
our mind triggers the danger alarm to get us to do something different, to protect us, to get us to change our action. So while that imagery is there, then we're going to feel that stress response each time we go. So when we can learn to access that image and we can shrink it, we can change it, we can update it, we can add learning to it, we can evolve it and process it, then it no longer comes across as dangerous and our mind can let it go. So in order to get to that stage, we need to learn how it works. And then when we learn how it works, then we can master it. So I thoroughly believe over the coming years, this concept of emotional memory images is going to make quite a significant change in terms of how we deal with trauma. And what I've certainly found is that when we connect to that, things that have previously taken months or years to process, we can process them in a much, much shorter space of time. So it's, it's a really exciting time, I think, to be in the field of trauma care. I'm certainly excited by it because it sounds like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, a, a way to kind of up, because you mentioned updating the images and the imagery. And you're right, because earlier you talked about re, how we replay the traumatic event. We always replay it as we remember it. And as we remember it is just, you know, reliving it all over again as if it just happened. And so we're just constantly re-traumatizing ourselves. And if we update the replay, if we update the imagery, then we can change what happened to what we would have liked to happen, right? If you get into an argument with a significant other and maybe it, it becomes violent in some way to replay it in that it ends with a peaceful resolution, you hug it out, you, you, you know, they come to your games, whatever. Like we can, we can edit the experience and it's not, and I think that maybe people don't do that or are aware that they can do that because they feel like it would be lying to themselves. Like that's not what happened, but by replaying and ruminating and fixating on what's happened, it's not serving you and it's not allowing us to grow and move forward. Does that resonate with what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, a couple of elements I'd love to talk through there. So the thing that really surprised me when I learned it is that what the research shows is that the human mind has over 188 cognitive biases. So there are over 188 ways where we have flaws in our thinking. So what happens is when we have a painful experience, we create a narrative around that. But that narrative that we create is actually filtered through these 188 different biases, which often means the story that we create isn't an objective story, but it's a story filtered through what we remember or what we felt or what was going on for us at the time. So when we're able to reconnect to that imagery and we can observe it rather than being in it, then we can start to ask different questions. Because, for example, say we go back to that same one where you were heavily criticized. Now, you could, by observing that moment, then start to ask yourself, well, what did I learn from that experience or how did I grow from that experience? And the answer to that might be, actually, I made it so that I then became so independent, I didn't need their praise or I didn't need their sort of um, coddling to able to get through it. And that was a big moment of growth for me. So for the vast majority of times, actually, we don't need to add in those different endings but we need to ask different questions to extract different information. And then there are other examples, which sort of you described, where actually observing the moment again and maybe seeing it from the other person's perspective or seeing it from a neutral third person perspective, we can get different stories and we can get different answers. So the main challenge that we have is that we have an experience, we create a narrative or a story around it, and then we don't question the story. 
So as we connect to that imagery again, and sometimes it's 20 years later, when we can observe it and ask quality questions, we can actually help the old emotions neutralize because we can see that that was part of our journey. So it was on our way rather than actually being in our way. And I could see that. And I, first of all, what a beautiful phrase of terms. It's what you say it's on our way instead of being in our way. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Can, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? So when we have an experience and we judge it as being all painful, as being all negative, as being all bad, then not only do we rubber stamp that as being a threat, our mind then projects that forward in case it could happen again. So we get in the cycle of anxiety. But when we can actually ask some quality questions to find out how did it help us grow? What did we learn from it? How did it push us to evolve? How did it make us more responsible? What benefits did it give us? What advantages did it give us? Then actually it turns into a resource which we can then move forwards with. So there's the sort of distinction between you either create emotional baggage that you then carry around with you or you create moments of growth that propel you forwards. And the only real difference is there is the questions that we ask and the way that we deal with and process that information. That's powerful right there. I, uh, man, I have a million questions. So I would imagine for someone, because you're talking about quality of questions and a lot of people probably don't even know where to start with these questions. It sounds like what you're saying is, the two basic questions are, you know, what do I want and what can I do from where I am? Are there other questions one can ask? What, what are just basic questions that would typically fit any type of uh, emotional disturbance someone is experiencing or any type of traumatic reliving that someone is going yeah. through? So the... The mantra or one of the sort of key principles that I do my best to live by is that it's infinitely harder to change something that you resent compared to changing something that you appreciate. So when we ask the question of rather, why is this happening to me? And we shift it towards why is this happening for me? Then we can start to see, OK, how is it serving me? And the reality is sometimes the answers to those questions might be a little bit uncomfortable. So we need to be able to be aware that sometimes those answers aren't feel good, lovely answers, but they might be really important for us to grow. So when we can say, OK, this is the roadblock that I'm facing. Now, why is it that this roadblock is, is being presented to me now? What feedback is this giving me? What is this going to push me to do? How is this going to help me move forwards? And then we can see it in a different frame. And when we see it in a different frame, I'm not pretending any of those pains aren't there. All I'm suggesting is that when we can view the pains and the opportunities together, then our nervous system feels more balanced because we can see both sides. So it's about bringing balance to our equations and balance to our thoughts, which then helps us to deal with problems in a more objective way. And we know that when we're more objective, we think more clearly, we can be more creative, we're more resourceful, and then they become sort of challenges that we overcome. Is this a question you would ask someone who is in a heightened state of despair or emotional turmoil, because I could see if I, you know, when looking back on times where I'm, I'm feeling really flooded, really upset, really emotional, that sometimes words, any kind of words, any type of language can just feel like it's too much. It is, is, are we starting with questions? Is this something you, you know, you're walking into a situation, somebody wants to jump, are we asking them questions? Or, or is there a, a step before that or an alternative yeah, that's, to that? That's, that's a really great and important point, because when we are flooded and overwhelmed, 
often actually we need to do something to help soothe or calm our nervous system to then allow us to ask questions. So what I tend to think of it is of when we've built the muscle over months or even years of asking questions, we can do it more automatically. But for most people, when they're in the grips of a challenge, then it's actually doing things that can get the sort of the arousal of my nervous system to calm, to get us into a more grounded place. And then we can start to just look at things differently. So that doesn't mean sometimes just jumping in. So say if you've had a really difficult set of circumstances, maybe someone has passed away or maybe has been a really tragic event that's happened. Asking the question of why is this happening for me is just going to be probably totally inappropriate and it's going to actually propel things the other way. So there's definitely a time and a place for these. But when we can do them on the little things, then we can start to apply them on the bigger things. But yes, soothing the nervous system first is often the, the first port of call. So talk to me about what that when you, t- you said soothing, calming, grounding. What are some ways people can soothe, calm and ground that that's not involving asking questions? These, I would say, are the more widespread or more commonly known things so the easiest without a doubt is tapping in and connecting to your breath so there's that famous phrase that goes when the mind wanders so does the breath when the breath wanders so does the mind so our breath is our easiest and simplest way to get us back and grounded into the here and now We've got using simple mindful exercises to just get us present again. So tapping into what we're experiencing. I think this is a huge part of where yoga helps so many people because it gets them into their body. It gets them into their senses, which sort of you can't think about so many different things in your life if you're focusing on doing a a yoga session. It could be for other people actually having bodily contact could be a hug because actually there isn't much more. There isn't anything really much more effective than a good hug to actually calm and soothe the nervous system. So I think these are more of the common things that we do automatically. And the challenges often will use self-care as a buffer to keep us in a tolerable zone but it's actually going past that to actually really deal with them. That's a little bit more daunting, but that's where the bigger rewards are. So it's all of the traditional things that we use in terms of like the the self-care umbrella. Yeah. I think one of the things when I think about why yoga is so effective and, and people bring up yoga versus like CrossFit or a group class is that we're barefoot in yoga and there's something about, walking around barefoot feeling the ground the earth the mat that is soothing um you know when i think about cortisol levels or you know i think about it rising from the feet up um Mm. do you i see you nodding your head it's interesting because so many people when you watch old movies they'll throw cold water on their face to kind of calm down And I find that actually putting my feet in cold water is a way to calm me down, almost like putting them in a babbling brook or in a river. Can you speak to that? I think this is a very personal experience in terms of what what you find soothing. And with the cold water on the face, I think that's sometimes a really good way to interrupt the state that you're in but it might not necessarily be an ideal one to soothe the state that you're in. Whereas when we go towards, for example, a yoga session or a Pilates session or anything of that kind of ilk, then not only is all of the associations to that relaxation or spiritual or soothing, but we're we're going into a context that has lots of pleasant associations for us. So, the nice example there where you described feet in a babbling brook. Now, for some people, that won't work and that won't resonate. But for you, as you've built that association, you can then use that experience and that imagery to help you. 
So this is kind of where our values come in. So what's important to us? What do we appreciate? What do we like? And then somehow getting that in to sort of meet where we're at. You've worked with so many people and helped so many people deal with their trauma and resolve it. What have been some of the interesting techniques, skills, uh, tactics that people have used to ground themselves or to calm themselves? You know, for me, I talk about the babbling brook. Uh, we talk about breath work. Have there been some interesting uh, ways that people have found that help to, to ground them? So if we start, first of all, with the visual system, some people like to visualize the thoughts that they have or the feelings that they have just being attached to balloons and then gradually lifting up and drifting away. So that's quite a nice one for the visuals. In terms of the feeling or the kinesthetic, more biased people, just drawing a circle around you. And then sort of almost imagining that bubble around you where you have your own private personal space, which can give you a, a little bit of a, a disconnect from the world around you and allow you to go inwards a little bit. And for other people, it's simply doing the thing that they love the most, because our brain is designed to reward us with feeling the best way when we do things that we love. So if you're an avid runner and you love long distance running, then you can tap into that and you can get that feeling by going for a run. So we want to really connect to what is that you love doing and how can we use that to actually get you grounded and get you back in uh, an optimal state? I love that. I know that for you as a kid, you know, the ways that you coped before you learned really healthy coping mechanisms was through food and alcohol. To, to what extent was the food and alcohol? Were you having DUIs? Were you 300 pounds? Like, talk to us <laughs> about wh why food and alcohol and what that looked like for you. Well, it was, it was never to an extreme, but it was consistent. And it would be a case of on a Friday night, there would be rather than just a couple of glasses to relax, then it would be a bottle or two bottles. And then on the Saturday night, it would be the same. And then maybe on the Sunday, I would go watch some sport and then there would be more drink. And then when it really showed up for me is when I was trying to find a relationship I would need alcohol to get me into a state where I would feel confident enough to go and speak to someone or to go on a date with someone. And then if that then didn't work, my mechanism to deal with that disappointment would then be to go home and then finish off the bottle of wine. And then when the bottle of wine is finished, then the crisps and the chocolate and the takeaway comes out. So I would just, you, I would self-medicate using all of these different things to try and fill that emotional void. But all it does is just delay it slightly. And then we have the repercussions to deal with later. And I always remember the moment where I was standing in my bedroom, looking at my reflection in the mirror, and I could see the empty wine bottle in the bin, the chocolate wrappers, I could sort of hand on my gut, and I could just see that this wasn't helping me, this wasn't serving me. But Although I didn't ask for these issues, there was no one else who was going to sort them than me. And that was kind of the moment where I thought, right, it's, it's time to take action. And the first thing I did was think, who do I know who can help me? Because I can't do this alone. And I think that applies to so many different areas of mental health. Who can we speak to who knows how this works? So I assume you went to a, a therapist or group therapy or what was your what was your road after that? So my first impulse was that I didn't feel that sitting down and talking through all of my stories was going to be the best avenue for me. I just didn't think that was going to work for me. So I started to look more towards the hypnotic area. And I actually found someone who specializes in how the subconscious mind works. So I had that session and I'll always remember it because it was when I was 27 and I, I was single. 
up to that point. So I was single up until the age I was 27. I had my first session. And then 10 days later, I met my wife. So for me, that was kind of the biggest bit of feedback I could ever have that actually learning how your mind works is going to pay dividends for you. So that's really the moment that got me to change everything. I'm hearing so many people talk more about hypnosis. I have a friend, he was an alcoholic for a long time and, um, you know, he went through the 12 step program, but, uh, hypnosis was part of his, uh, his trip back to himself. Uh, is there, is there anything that we haven't discussed from your book or from your history that you think would be relevant to someone who is struggling with trauma? So there's one element that I think sometimes holds people back. And this is an area called family rules. So family rules essentially means the instructions or the rules that you learn when you were a child from your parents or caregivers about what is acceptable and what is not. So it's a way for parents to set out the rules for if you are in this family, this is how it works. And a lot of people who had difficult upbringings, the rules that they might not have been told directly, but they learn was might be don't talk about your emotions or don't tell anyone on the outside. Keep things private and respect your elders all these type of rules that actually we often carry forward into adulthood and those are the rules that can actually stop us reaching out for help because when you were younger if your mum and dad made it very clear that actually you don't tell anyone about the stuff that's happening then when you're in your 30s or 40s the idea of then reaching out for help can be really paralyzing and it's not something that you're consciously thinking about, but it's just running in the background. So what I often think is helpful, and I kind of guide people through this uh, little exercise in the book, is to start to make a note of the common phrases or sort of rules that you had when you were growing up. And then just start to work through, could they still be influencing you now? And a lot of the time that tick list has a lot of checks on it. And we're actually unknowingly following the rules we were given when we were little. But as an adult, we now have the ability to step outside of those rules. And just that can actually be liberating because that allows you to open new doors and explore new possibilities. I love that. And then uh, is there a song or a book that you've reread or, or a song that you like to, to listen to over and over again? just for any reason, just something that you talk about, you know, things that you love. I'm some, I'm more interesting when it comes to music because I don't have set favorites. And a lot of people find this quite difficult to understand. This, how can you not just love something and keep playing it? But what I find actually I enjoy the most is change. So I like to listen to things that are different. So when it comes to music, you'll often find me with music on, but very rarely will I go back to the same piece of music over and over again. So for me, actually, it's it's variation that works. And that actually comes into my reading as well. So often I'll, I love, as many people on this podcast, personal development books, and often I like to work through them. And then I love variation and then pulling the ideas together rather than rereading them. But I think that's a, just a personal preference of mine. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty much the same way. I keep saying I'll reread a book when I'm maybe 65 or 70 year old or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, but every time I finish a great book, I'm like, oh, I, I'm going to reread it. But, you know, I have like a million books that I want to read. And I don't think I'll ever run out of books that I want to read. So we'll see. Um, yeah. Last question, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Danny? I would say that when you're in that position, it may feel like there aren't any options, but just because it may feel like that doesn't mean there aren't more options. And the only way that we can find those options 
is by speaking to someone outside of ourselves. So I think the most important step is to speak to someone who is external, who ideally has training in this area to help them find just one more, two more options. Because I firmly believe that when we can see we have options, then we can start to make progress. So when we feel like we don't have options, that's when we start to run into trouble. So my one thing would be speak to someone and explore different options because it will just be the smallest bit of light that needs to come in that can then open up a whole new world of change. Thank you, Danny. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE. Oh, they changed the phone number. See, it's 988, the new 988 number. But if you're in the UK, if you are in China or Ecuador or Toronto, wherever you are in the world, Switzerland, Finland, uh, there are international phone numbers where you can talk, chat, text. Uh, please go pick up Danny's books. All, I say books. That's right. He's written multiple books. But um, you definitely want to pick up his book, uh, The Accelerated Trauma Resolution, The Step-by-Step Guide to Overcoming Trauma. And where can they reach out to you, Danny? So the easiest place to reach out to me is my website, which is www.thetraumaexpert.co.uk. You can get the book for free in audio format or PDF, um, and you can just go through and take the process. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you, Danny. Thank you for having me.